Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead this hour, we'll talk with the author of a new book on former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. It examines how he was able to maintain power for so long. Also, we'll learn about the late civil rights pioneer C.T. Vivian, who grew up in Illinois. A woman traces her family's role in helping bring the blues to Chicago. We'll hear about a statewide effort to help children exposed to high levels of lead. And a western Illinois man is finally coming home, decades after being killed in World War II. And to be able to lay him to rest, I think is going to cause us to be able to close a chapter that was always left open. Those stories and more ahead this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. In Illinois, the average winter temperature is about 5 degrees warmer than it was in 1970. And as Shayla Farzan reports, warmer winters are changing how some farmers grow their crops. On a frigid winter morning, Liz Graysnack cracks open the door of a greenhouse, letting out a rush of warm, earthy-smelling air. She carefully peels back a layer of cloth on the ground, revealing rows of tiny sprouts. That's the delphinium plants. These little dudes right there. (laughs) This is just one of four greenhouses that Graysnack has at her organic farm near Columbia, Missouri. Inside, she's able to grow delicate, high-value crops, like flowers and spinach. Graysnack says these greenhouses help protect plants from extreme swings in weather, something she's noticed is happening more frequently. We don't get a couple of inches of snow. We get 18 inches of snow. All at once. And then in five days, it's 70 degrees again. Like, that's devastating to a vegetable farm. Data show extreme weather is just one of the many effects of climate change across the U.S. For farmers like Graysnack, another major change is warmer winters. The four hottest Januaries on record have all occurred since 2016. Amy Butler is a climate scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says winter is warming faster than any other season, based on data going back to the late 1800s. But, she says, cold weather will still happen. Less cold does not mean never cold. It just means that really cold weather will happen less often and be less severe or persistent in the future. These warmer winters have ripple effects in agriculture, says Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub in Ames, Iowa. One of the effects is on soils. Toddy says Midwestern soil is fertile because historically it freezes every year, which stops bacteria and other organisms from breaking it down. As the winters warm, we have a longer period of time where that is unfrozen or we have more of the area that it never freezes. So the soils can kind of break down. So we start losing more of that good uh, nutrient value in those soils. When soils don't freeze, it can also help crop pests survive the winter and allow them to expand into new regions. But when it comes to agriculture in the Midwest, one of the most noticeable results of climate change right now is longer growing seasons. Richard Oswald's family has been farming in northwest Missouri on the Nebraska border since the 1840s. When I was a kid, my dad had a firm rule, you don't plant corn before the 12th of May. And the reason for that is the right time to plant corn is when 
oak leaves are the size of squirrel's ears. That's when the season starts. <laughs> now, Oswald says, he and other farmers plant corn a month earlier, in mid-April. That's partly because they're planting hardier varieties now. But he says the weather also warms up a lot sooner than it used to. These longer growing seasons can result in higher yields. Still, Oswald says he worries climate change will make farming much harder in the future. He's been thinking about it more and more since 2019, when catastrophic flooding swamped his farm and childhood home. From his pickup truck, he points to where the water stood for months. From the Nebraska bluffs behind us to the Missouri bluffs in front of us, it was all water. Oswald lost about 26,000 bushels of corn in that flood, some of which is still rotting on the ground at his farm. He says farmers rely on science and data every day to grow their crops, and the data show climate change is happening. But in his community, not many people will discuss it. They don't want to use the word climate change. Yeah, it's been hot, but I don't want to call it climate change. Or it's been wet, but I wouldn't say it's climate change. Having these frank discussions is hard, he says, but it will help them better prepare for what's coming. I'm Shayla Farzan. Corn ethanol has long been lauded as having fewer environmental impacts than gasoline. But as Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, a new study finds the biofuel may not be climate-friendly. In 2005, Congress passed the Renewable Fuel Standard in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the transportation sector. But according to a recent study, it may have done the opposite. Tyler Lark is an author on the study and a scientist based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He says the policy incentivized massive corn production, which has a big environmental impact. In general, when you convert something like a perennial grassland to an annual annually cultivated cropland, there's significant carbon emissions associated with that land use change. He says more than 5 million acres of natural landscape were converted to crop production as a result of the renewable fuel standard. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Well, as we told you on last week's show, Sycamore citizens filed a class action lawsuit against the city in 2020, claiming leaders ignored issues with the water system, leading to high levels of lead in the water. In the final part of his series, Looking Into Lead Exposure, Peter Medlin reports on the statewide effort to help children exposed to high levels of lead. Lead poisoning is the number one environmental illness in children, and there are calls for local and national action to prevent exposure by replacing lead service pipes and removing lead paint from older homes. But what about the kids who've already been poisoned? Lead poisoning, even in small amounts, can cause significant developmental disabilities in children. Dr. Samina Hadi-Tabassum is a clinical associate professor at the Erickson Institute. She researches child development and worked on a pilot program with the Legal Council for Health Justice. It was aimed at helping the thousands of poisoned Illinois kids receive early intervention services. Hattie Tabassum says early intervention is a proactive approach to make sure young children with lead poisoning don't have the developmental delays that often come with it. They are working with the family, sitting next to the family, showing families how to play with the children, how to talk to the children, how to engage with the children, how to ask questions, how to read a book. Her group lobbied lawmakers, and in 2019, the state passed a law automatically enrolling kids in early intervention services if they're diagnosed with five micrograms per deciliter of lead in their blood, 
whereas the previous level was 10. That means a lot more kids are going to qualify for those services, but after the law passed, Hadi Tabassum's program ran into a new problem. As you know, with policy, it has to get disseminated. And many of the pediatricians we were talking to, not all of them were aware of the policy changes. Not all of them were aware of the effects of even lead. They held workshops, developed service guidelines, and surveyed a few hundred pediatricians to raise awareness. So what happens to kids who've already been poisoned? Well, Hadi Tabassum says it really depends. Some pediatricians, you know, they talked about how they didn't get enough information in medical school about the effects of lead, or it's been like 20 some years since I've been in medical school. Some of them said, well, if I don't see any cognitive delays in this 12 month infant, I might not ask them to actually move forward with early intervention, right? So there was a great degree of subjectivity. Lead screening is required for students entering public school, but testing is required for children who are deemed high risk due to their area code or other factors. Every child in Chicago is considered high risk. Didi Lowry is the program manager at Child and Family Connections in Rockford, and they helped roll out the early intervention pilot for families in the Rockford area. She says they get around 30 referrals for kids with lead poisoning every year. And she says in many cases, parents aren't seeing developmental delays in their child yet. So it's their job to express how serious lead poisoning is. When the pandemic hit, some families were uncomfortable with service providers in their home. Advocates also worry that families weren't able to get the testing done to qualify their child for services because of COVID-19. In the spring of 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, Illinois tested over 35,000 fewer children for lead than in that same stretch the year before. In April alone, the rate of childhood testing fell 73%. Once early intervention went digital, they're finding parents just as engaged, though. Lowry says they're still getting referrals, especially thanks to community-based organizations. Crusader Community Health in this area, they're a big referral source for kids with elevated blood levels. But other doctors around the area are not. We get more referrals through them than we do through the health department, where you would think if they're knowledgeable about that, that we would be getting them for their Early intervention is only available for kids up to three years old as the youngest children are the most vulnerable to the effects of lead. As they age out of those services, Lowry says they meet with their school district to make sure they're aware of the child's condition and since many often need special education plans. Hattie Tabassum says there needs to be more communication within the community for kids with lead poisoning. Does the elementary school even know that this child was diagnosed with elevated lead in their bloodstream at age two? There's just a lack of information and communication about children in the state of Illinois. What about kids over the early intervention age when they're diagnosed? Often they end up in special education classrooms without investigation into how they got there. And even though young children are most vulnerable to lead, adults exposed can also suffer negative health effects. Greg Maurice is the director of health protection at the DeKalb County Health Department. In adults, I mean, it can cause like high blood pressure and hypertension, all sorts of different long-term type chronic illnesses. Both lead in drinking water and paint are prevalent in Illinois. Hattie Tabassum says lead paint is even more common in northern Illinois than lead leaching into water pipes. A flyer needs to be given to every single new family that says, here's what lead looks like. This is where it comes from. These are the effects of it. And you need to be concerned and contact your pediatrician immediately. And that's not happening. 
The early intervention program went into effect statewide in July 2020. Tabassum and her research group are still gathering data from 21 families who volunteered to be part of their study on early intervention services. What we found is that the, the 21 children who received early intervention services, we did not see any cognitive delays in the last three years of this study. I'm Peter Medlin. More than 400 crewmen died when the USS Oklahoma was attacked by Japanese aircraft at Pearl Harbor. Most were buried as unknown remains. But eight decades later, the remains of a west-central Illinois man who was on that battleship are finally coming home. For Tri-States Public Radio, Jane Carlson brings us that story. The USS Oklahoma sustained multiple torpedo hits on December 7, 1941. It capsized quickly. Then it took Navy personnel several years to recover the remains of the deceased, which were buried in naval cemeteries in Hawaii. 23-year-old Navy Fireman First Class George Franklin Price from Dallas City was among them. Joyce Martin of Burlington, Iowa, is Price's niece. She says Price had no children of his own, and his seven living nieces and nephews were all born after he died. Five of his sisters were left, and we called those the sisters. And every time we would get together as a family, we would hear the sisters talk about George. And that's how we grew to know who Uncle George was, by listening to these sisters. The sailors' remains were disinterred in 1947 as part of efforts to recover and identify fallen U.S. personnel in the Pacific Theater. But laboratory staff were only able to confirm the IDs of 35 men from the USS Oklahoma at that time. Then the hundreds of unidentified remains were buried again, this time at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, which is known as the Punch Bowl. And a military board classified those who could not be identified, including Price, as unrecoverable in 1949. When Martin thinks of the sisters' stories now, she hears something else in them. To hear the grief and the not knowing in the sisters' voices as they talked, now that I reflect back, you know... It really moves me now that I know what grief they went through as a family. But then in 2015, there was renewed interest in identifying the remains of the men who died on the USS Oklahoma. The Department of Defense's POWMIA accounting agency exhumed the unknowns from the punch bowl. That agency's mission is to provide the fullest possible accounting for missing personnel to their families and to the nation. And it led to Martin, her brother, and one of their cousins being contacted to provide DNA samples. All these years to be able to move forward one step in the process of finding anything to do with Uncle George really excited me. Deep down in the bottom of my heart, I knew someday there would be some result to this. Since 2015, scientists have used dental, anthropological, and DNA analysis to identify 355 of 388 service members from the USS Oklahoma, including Price. Martin says the nieces and nephews were ecstatic when they got the news. And to be able to lay him to rest, 
I think is going to cause us to be able to close a chapter that was always left open. Even though we didn't know him, we always had a chapter in our lives left wide open. Before Price's remains were identified, his name was recorded on the courts of the missing at the Punch Bowl. Now the Navy will put a rosette by his name there to show he's been accounted for. And now he will be buried once again, but this time it will be in his hometown. He will be laid to rest in the same cemetery that his mother and father are buried in and four of his sisters be laid to rest between two sisters. Martin's father served in the Navy during World War II, as her brother, Albert Siegfried, did during Vietnam. Siegfried says bringing Uncle George home gives the family something they've needed for a long time. Well, to me, it's peace. Peace of mind, peace for his parents, peace for all his relatives that knew him. Price is not the only service member from Dallas City who died on the USS Oklahoma to be identified in recent years. The remains of 25-year-old Navy Fireman First Class Robert J. Haar were identified last year. Haar is now buried in Rutledge, Missouri. Lieutenant Commander Jory Moore of the Navy Casualty Office says identifying the remains provides closure for the families and is a way for the Navy to honor sailors who paid the ultimate sacrifice. I'm Jane Carlson. Just ahead, a new book looks at the former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan's decades as a political power broker. We'll talk with the author. That's coming up next. When you look back at the last 50 years of government and politics in Illinois, you can't write the story without a major player, Michael Madigan. The former Illinois House Speaker left office in 2021 under the cloud of a federal investigation. The utility Commonwealth Edison admitted to using bribery to help curry favor with Madigan and gain support for legislation. Madigan has denied wrongdoing, and he's not been charged. But it did lead to the end of the longest tenure of any legislative leader in the country. Trying to put his career in perspective is no easy task, but if anyone can, it's Ray Long, a veteran reporter with the Chicago Tribune. And he has a new book, The House That Madigan Built, The Record Run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. Ray, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Sean. Thank you for having me. So what made you decide to tackle this project? Well, you know, it's interesting. I always thought that, man, if there was a book that should be done, it should be done about Mike Madigan because of all his power and all of his sweep and all of the scope that he has here and the impact that he has had on state government. And then a couple or three years ago, I got an email one day from the U of I press and said, would you like to do a book on Mike Madigan? And I said, yes. And uh, so I started uh, thinking about how to approach it. And I didn't want to put together a book that uh, was a total biography that said what kind of cereal he did when he was growing up, et cetera. But um, I wanted to focus on some of the big events that happened that I saw that really had impact and played a role in shaping the state that we live in today. Well, you had a front row seat to a lot of those events. How long did you cover Madigan? Well, I started in 1981 as an intern in the public affairs reporting program at what was then Sangamon State University, now, of course, University of Illinois at Springfield. And um, that was just a a true introduction to this wild, raw politics that we have in the Illinois State House. That was back in the last term 
of the big house, the 177 member house where they had cumulative voting and they had three house members from each district. And for those who don't remember what cumulative voting was, it was um, uh, you could vote three times for one person out of usually four on the ballot. Uh, You could split up your vote so that you could vote uh, one and a half votes if you wanted to go for two people or you could vote three different ways. It was uh, a wild system. But the theory behind it, of course, was that it would help have some kind of minority voice in each district. Uh, It was a way to get more comity or more collaboration. And that was the theory behind it. A lot of people say that was a better way than we have it now. Of course, it was a cutback uh, in 1980, and that required going to 118 single-member districts. And the power started to consolidate. And that is just when Madigan became speaker. Uh, In 1981, he was minority leader. And George Ryan was the House Speaker. They had some feisty exchanges. And then uh, when Madigan became Speaker in 1983, he started what, of course, you alluded to was his record run, 36 years as Speaker of the House. When you have somebody who's been in office that long and in power that long, how do you decide on what you're going to focus on for a book? The hardest thing on this Sean was trying to decide what to leave out. There are all kinds of stories that had to be uh, left on the cutting room floor. And I even say in the preface that everybody's going to have a story that they think should have been in this book. But what I tried to do was pull together a lot of the impactful and memorable moments uh, that happened in the legislature as well as some of the things that happened on the ground up in Chicago. And for example, I talked about uh, his incredible skill as a map drawer for the redistricting that we just went through here uh, in the latest legislative session to try to redraw the lines for the district boundaries that we have. Uh, He was a master at that. Uh, That is one reason that Democrats uh, control both houses of the General Assembly today. I also talked about uh, or wrote about the White Sox miracle that Madigan and Thompson teamed up together and, and pulled a rabbit out of the hat. And Madigan was able to make time stand still. And they passed the bill that saved the White Sox in Chicago. And it was just a the a dramatic time when you saw Madigan out working members on his side of the aisle and Thompson working members on his side of the aisle and running over to the Democratic side too. Of course, Thompson was governor and and uh, they pulled it off at the last, last minute. Uh, Jim McPike was sitting in the speaker's chair and grabbed he had grabbed the gavel out of uh, Peg Breslin's hands. She was uh, against the White Sox stadium voted against it. And uh, he uh, managed to pull together a a variety of votes in just the last few minutes. And they they even disabled the clock. So you couldn't tell exactly what time it was. And I cite uh, some of the great radio reporting of Charlie McBaron, 
who gave play-by-play, and it was just an outstanding uh, radio show. And it told about how, you know, we're still, we don't know what time they're looking at or what clock they're using, but it sure is close to midnight deadline here. And uh, meanwhile, they were twisting arms and they finally got 60 and McPike slammed down the gavel and said at 11.59, the bill passes. And of course, we all ran up to get copies of the roll call and the roll call said 12.03. But uh, Thompson and Madigan both said, you know, it looked like 11.59. The speaker said it was 11.59. And uh, by golly, uh, no uh, court in the land is going to overturn it. And that's exactly what happened. No court overturned it. And and uh, like it or not, that was... Um, a major power play. And of course, we also talked about Operation Cobra, which is the big six-hour, uh, incredible, raw power play where uh, Madigan pulled tax hike out of the hat. He had been opposed to Thompson's version of a tax hike for three legislative sessions. And in the middle of the third in May of the third session, he comes out with his own. He had uh, uh, a couple of papers, Sun-Times, Peoria Journal-Star had had that. And uh, then as soon as uh, those papers hit the newsstand, uh, Peggy Boyer, now Peggy Boyer-Long, my wife, was in the radio studio there at, uh, at uh, WUIS. And uh, she started uh, broadcasting this. And a lot of people first learned of Madigan's uh, plans to pass this uh, tax hike um, over the radio. People came in, Thompson came roaring in. He didn't know about it. He looked like he was punch drunk. I said he looked like he'd gone a couple of rounds with uh, Ken Norton, the uh, great uh, boxing champion from Jacksonville, Illinois. And uh, he said he was going into to Madigan's office to see if it was true what he was proposing. So, you know, when when they, when they did that, uh, it was just... Uh, Truly raw power, 60 Democratic votes. Uh, the whole thing came th- through the House and, and uh, six hours or less and just dramatic and incredible impact. And of course, eventually they had to, it uh, ended up passing and, and Madigan got his way again. So those are kind of the legendary moments that uh, Madigan really polished his legend. Of course, I write about patronage and the historic impeachment of Rod Blagojevich, which was possibly uh, Madigan's finest moment. But then we also, of course, have uh, written uh, the parts that are he probably won't like as much as the rest of, of the book. And that uh, would be the last few years where the turning point came. I call the turning point when uh, Elena Hampton uh, came forward with her sexual harassment claims against uh, one of Madigan's staffers up in his office in Chicago. That never really went away, even though Madigan addressed it. Then, of course, when the uh, ComEd scandal erupted and Madigan was implicated and named as public official A, uh, we write about that too. It's uh, It's got a beginning and an end, and, and uh, it is one heck of a ride for anybody who is uh, uh, interested in and politics. We're talking with Ray Long. He's a reporter with the Chicago Tribune. He has a new book, The House That Madigan Built. And we're talking about the former Illinois House Speaker, 
some of the things you mentioned there, they almost sound a bit chaotic. At the same time, Madigan always struck me as very meticulous, very well prepared, at least from somebody who is observing him from the outside. That made some of the problems that he ran into, especially at the end, even more surprising, didn't it? Right. He was very much in control. And you hit it on the head there, Sean, as you know, you covered him. Uh, he was very much in control much of the time. But I do believe that the uh, uh, Me Too movement took him uh, by surprise uh, in the breadth and scope of it. As you know, he later ejected his longtime chief of staff, Tim Mapes, uh, after uh, Central Illinois a woman who was a clerk and uh, working for Mapes uh, put, uh, blew the whistle on him for uh, sexual harassment, et cetera, and um, just kind of a, allowing a, a rough uh, atmosphere uh, that uh, just never really died down. And so uh, there were times that uh, Madigan acted swiftly with Mapes. Uh, once the charges were made in a press conference in Chicago, Mapes was out uh, within hours. Of course, these are allegations against Mapes, and uh, Mapes, of course, has denied them. Uh, Mapes also, Sean, you remember, has been charged in the ComEd scandal for allegedly lying to the grand jury. Did anything surprise you? that you learned while writing this book? Uh, it's a great question. I think the amount of control that he had and the depth of it uh, was not a surprise, but it, it's just interesting to see it all threaded together. And I think that's what I tried to do here. Uh, even though I, I focus on specific things like his patronage army, uh, you know, the politics of money, how he was persuading, how he dealt with the pensions and issues like that, how he dealt with Rauner too. Um, these are, are things that, that show a, a person who really want, wanted to be a strong leader, a leader uh, in the spirit and um, one who took up the tutelage of Richard or took the instructions and was a, a, a person who who was just a, a real top student of Richard J. Daly, took those lessons and, uh, you know, really uh, it was able to do even more than Mayor Daly was with control of the politics that he was over. He was one of the last, if not maybe the last, machine-style politician. Would you say that that led to his downfall? Because that doesn't seem to work in today's politics. Well, I think that uh, he put a lot of power in the hands of a few. And uh, as that was playing out, a lot of people did not uh, have a voice and a lot of people could not uh, get to Madigan because uh, he had screens up there. And so he delegated at the end to some folks who might not have been the best people to to have running the show. A lot of people, for example, say Tim Mapes was great at uh, running the railroad, but uh, the way he did it was what was uh, a real problem in the end. Have you heard from the former speaker since you've uh, been working on this book? No, I've heard from people who have talked to him, though. Uh, I did reach out 
uh, to Madigan to interview with him, but he did not take me up on that. But, you know, I've covered him for so long and I, I got so many quotes from over the years that uh, that there wasn't a lack of uh, Madigan comments in the book. For people who have read about Madigan through the years, uh, but you know haven't been that close to him, may not realize, like you said, the breadth of his power. How would you sum him up? Well, he's a very uh, powerful guy uh, because he had a, a grand reach on many levers of state government and other governments too. He was able to reach into local government and have a large impact on jobs that were handed out there and in judgeships and in agencies throughout the state. And he was able to also have his handle on many levers of politics. So he controlled the the funds. And so he was able to put the campaign funding uh, where he thought it was needed the most to hold the majority in the House and hold his speakership. So he had control of that. He had control of the legislative process. He was viewed as somebody who could virtually pass or kill a bill. As a result, um, he was spectacular detail guy on trying to get all of these uh, incredible and sometimes diffuse uh, activities uh, to work in tandem. As a result, he was able to build his power even more. Do you think we'll ever see, and you hate to say never, but do you think we'll ever see anybody be able to gain and amass that type of power uh, in Illinois politics, at least sometime in the near future? It's really hard to imagine. Mike Madigan was a guy who actually helped write the Constitution we're under now, the one that was, uh, and he was sharp at building the rules, writing the rules, writing the laws, looking how to tweak them to his advantage. And really, uh, the breadth of knowledge that he had from ground level of the Constitution on up through the years is an incredible feat. And uh, some people will say that, uh, you know, he was a jerk and some people will say he's a genius and some people will say both. But he is one guy who is going to be hard to match. That's Chicago Tribune investigative reporter Ray Long. His new book, The House That Madigan Built, The Record Run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer, is coming out soon from University of Illinois Press. Ray, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Well, stay with us here on Statewide. Up next, we'll talk with another author and look back at the life and career of the Reverend C.T. Vivian. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A likeness of Abraham Lincoln that experts say helped improve his image and secure the presidency has been donated to his namesake library and museum in Springfield. Sculptor Leonard Volk made the bust in 1860 and gave Lincoln a copy before he was president. The Lincolns displayed it in their home until they moved to Washington when they gave it to a family friend. 
The Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum's head of acquisitions, Dr. Ian Hunt, says early public opinion cast Lincoln as awkward, homely, and weak. But he says this likeness conveys strength, integrity, and character. Illinois' First Lady, M.K. Pritzker, bought the bust at an auction recently for $400,000 and donated it to the museum. It's Black History Month, and you don't have to look far to find Illinois' ties to the civil rights movement. The Reverend C.T. Vivian grew up in Illinois. Vivian died before finishing his memoir, It's in the Action, and that left author Steve Pfeiffer with the job of telling the rest of the civil icon story. Pfeiffer spoke with Tim Shelley about how he completed the book and some of Vivian's stories about living in Illinois. He was 90 years old and he'd never told his story. So after a little back and forth, we decided to collaborate uh, on a memoir that would be told in his voice. And we started and we got quite far. I did quite a bit of interviewing with him. But as time went by, his memory faded and he passed away as we were kind of towards the end of the process. But fortunately, there's so much that has been either recorded of him in the past or speeches or sermons that I was able to get my hands on, previous interviews and so forth, so that I was able to uh, complete the book even in his absence. Of course, I wish he were around because there's been a really a lot of nice attention and recognition of his importance, and uh, while he got plenty of that in his lifetime, it would have been nice for him to be getting it now as well. I just wanted to talk a little bit about his childhood growing up in West Central Illinois, Macomb. That was kind of a pivotal, uh, formative period for him. I was wondering if you two had chatted a little bit about that. While he did attend integrated elementary school and high school in Macomb, it was formative for him because He did experience racism. So when he was in high school, even though the teacher told him that he should have had the lead in the special junior class play, but that he couldn't because he was black and would he like to paint scenery, or when classmates told him they'd love to have him over for parties or for dinner, but their parents wouldn't let him. It was really his first exposure to, uh, I guess what you call, institutional racism. And there's a great story he told me about when they first moved, where he was out in the yard and saw what he thought was a ghost, gathered up all his courage, and decided to go for it and, and approach the ghost. And it turned out to be sheets that were just hanging on the family wash, But he said it taught him a lesson that you don't back away from things that might scare you. It's a move down the road a little bit. He went to Western Illinois University, and then he came to Peoria, uh, Illinois, to take a job at the Carver Center. And that was really his the first time we hear about C.T. Vivian really engaging in nonviolent civil protests, so to speak. The opportunity for kind of organized nonviolent direct action was a relatively new concept in the United States at that time. Yes, Bishop's Cafeteria was uh, it wasn't allowing black patrons to sit at the tables, well, they, they kind of came up with this ingenious way to shame the owners into seating blacks. The white people that were part of this protest, they would go in and two people would sit at a table for four, and then two black people would come in 
and the two people, the two white people at the table would invite them to join them and really force the hand of the white manager to kick out the black people. And they would have to do it in front of all the other patrons. It was, it took quite a few weeks, but they eventually wore down the management there and the cafeteria was fully integrated. What was it like to hear his firsthand account of that pivotal moment in civil rights history with Jim Clark in Selma, Alabama, 1965, where he's struck by the sheriff and then he gets back up? His memory of that was quite clear when I said, you know, how did you get yourself together to go back up there and speak so eloquently? And he said, I really didn't know what I was going to say but you cannot walk away from violence when you're doing nonviolent direct action. You lose if that happens. And I knew that all those other people that I brought to the courthouse that day to register with me were counting on me to go forward. I would urge your listeners to go to YouTube and just put in C.T. Vivian, Sheriff Jim Clark, their numerous videos of it. And it's really one of the most iconic moments of the movement. He's such an elegant and eloquent response to evil. Steve Pfeiffer is the co-author of the C.T. Vivian memoir, It's in the Action. Vivian died in 2020. Gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming Gonna be a son of a gun That's the Great Muddy Waters, known as the father of modern Chicago blues. He was born and raised in the South, but he made his way to Chicago, like so many others, during the Great Migration. Ariane Nettles with member station WBEZ traced her own family's history during that time and the role her relatives played in establishing Chicago's connection to the blues. Like a lot of black Chicagoans, my granddaddy Narvell and my grandma B were among those who left Mississippi in the 1940s and headed north. I decided to trace the history of my grandparents' experience with the blues. We're living in inflation. I already knew they owned a lounge on Chicago's South Side in the 1950s and a record label for decades after. But I was still surprised when I picked up a book on Chicago blues and found my granddaddy's name right smack in the middle. Your grandpa was a hustler. He, he wasn't a hoodlum. He, he wasn't a gangster. No, but he was a hustler. He was out there making that money. And that was the name of the game. More about my granddaddy's hustle later. Most people know that black people migrating to Chicago brought the blues with them. But Chicago had three things that made it the perfect place to start a blues business. First, by the middle of the 20th century, there was already a large community of working black folks. This was especially true in the black belt on the south side, where a majority of the city's black residents lived at the time, my family included. World War II had just ended. And in Chicago, the black community, many of whom had just arrived, laid the groundwork for what would become a booming blues industry. Here's David Whitus, author of Chicago Blues, Portraits and Stories. It was a major urban center. There were opportunities to open a club or a lounge or a bar. My granddaddy had just gotten out of the Army, and he'd always had entrepreneurial dreams. So when he got to Chicago, he could own a club, because there were a lot of people in Chicago who had the money to support his business. That kind of success here, while still hard to achieve, was possible. 
because the black people who came here still wanted to hear the blues. This migration, what Al Bell from Stax Records always affectionately called Mississippi River culture. And he says anywhere there's Mississippi River culture, they like the blues and they like deep soul music. My grandparents came from that Mississippi River culture, and they were immersed in the music that spoke about oppression and the hard life of sharecropping. My aunt, Mary Brooks, says she remembers how my grandma B would always say she left Mississippi because she was just sick and tired of picking cotton. The reason many people left Mississippi and Alabama and everywhere is because they were tired of the circumstances there. They were tired of being boys and girls and they wanted to be men and women. So yeah, they came north, and they brought the blues with them. And the second reason Chicago was primed for the blues, there was already a recording industry set up here. Chess Records started in 1950, and they recorded Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and other Chicago blues artists. But Chess's owners were here before that, already a part of Chicago's music industry. And entrepreneurs like my granddaddy recognized that too. They formed many smaller but very important record labels that added to the city's robust industry. So if you were a blues musician, Chicago is where the work was. And reason number three is Chicago already had a thriving nightlife. With its history of the mafia, prohibition, and, well, paying folks to look the other way, the city was already primed for the blues industry to also grow into a nightlife ecosystem. We had loose liquor laws. We had mayors who allowed their police officers to take bribes and let the clubs open all night. We had mayors that really permitted vast areas of the South Side to be basically centers for vice. And as the Black Belt quickly filled with musicians and workers with a little money to blow, it was the perfect setup to create clubs and lounges that hosted performers and catered to guests. It was the perfect setup to put on a show. In my family, we were right in the middle of all the action. My granddaddy had the nickname Cadillac Baby, Aunt Mary again. He was a showman, so, you know, he had to be a showman to, to dress up every Saturday night in a top hat and a tuxedo. Woman, you know that I love you. All right. As a 10-year-old in the 1950s, my aunt was old enough to remember my granddaddy's larger-than-life persona and what it was like in our family's club. Her and her sisters would sneak downstairs at night to take a peek at all the action. The performers, the people dancing, the shows. Just like people, the kids are rapping now, we knew the words to these songs because these were the songs we heard and this was the expression of who we were. You're gonna make all your women jump and shout. Night after night, this was the scene at Cadillac Baby Show Lounge, named after my granddaddy, who was the colorful face of the business. At some point in the evening, he would drive his Cadillac right up onto the stage and get out of the car and bow to the audience, and that was the start of the show. It was quite a flamboyant entrance, and he was a very flamboyant character. I'm your horse who love you the most. Cadillac Baby, coming to you live from the bandstand of Cadillac Baby's show lounge. He loved it. He loved the notoriety. Located at 4708 
South Devon Street. And my grandma B worked diligently behind the scenes to make sure everything ran smoothly. Everybody loved them. Everybody loved B and Cadillac. Whitest, the author, says the blues industry was blossoming with black entrepreneurs making money like my grandparents. And after starting their club, they started a recording company, B and Baby Records, with my grandfather at the helm. Over the course of his career, he recorded quite a few Chicago blues artists who later became quite well known. They recorded artists like Little Mac, Hound Dog Taylor, Homesick James, and Eddie Boyd. My baby's gone, and she won't be back no more. By the 1970s, tastes were changing. Some black clubs were closing. My grandparents lost their club. Some younger black listeners saw the blues as representing the past. Meanwhile, white audiences were introduced to the genre through the music of groups like Cream and the Rolling Stones. Today, you can still find blues in Chicago, but some things have changed. There are clubs on the south side and the west side, but they're very few, not like it was in the 60s. Taranzo Cannon. At 51, he's one of the younger musicians in today's Chicago blues scene. He says these days, there's a clear divide. Those places which cater to black patrons and on the north side. You have what they would call your touristy um, blues clubs. And you get a lot of people from Europe, get a lot of uh, white people to go to these clubs. But there are still black musicians keeping the tradition alive with one important message. We're still here. It doesn't just stop at B.B. King or Muddy Waters or Buddy Guy. You know, we, we're still holding on to the, to the traditions as we know it. If there's a train that will take me there. I'm Ariane Nettles. And that's all the time we have for Statewide for this week. We hope you join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find all of our episodes at nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And also listen to our podcast through the NPR One app. Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.